We are picking up in our sermon series in Exodus this evening where we left off, and we are looking at Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. Um, We have already considered God raising up a redeemer in Moses. He was the old covenant redeemer. He is a type of Christ. We have seen in those early chapters of Exodus how God has prepared and shaped and and um, called Moses into his service, sending him back into Egypt at the spry age of 80. And he has brought Israel out with a strong arm and an outstretched hand. He has sent his plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the last time we were together, we considered those instructions about the Passover, and we considered that 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, and we saw how God had finally moved Pharaoh to drive his people out of Egypt. He has brought them by a different way than they would have expected to go, because as Moses records for us in chapter 13, the Lord knew that they were not ready for the warfare that they would have engaged in if he had taken them the ordinary route out of Egypt. And now the Lord is going to bring them to that place where he's going to show them his salvation. This is that great section of Exodus in which the Lord is going to bring his people through the Red Sea and destroy his enemies in the same waters by which he has saved his people. And so we're looking at Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 1 and reading down to verse 31. Now Moses records these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt, to let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. 
The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up the staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all the night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went in the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course, When the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this passage, recounts a story about a Scottish minister talking about an aged elderly uh, woman in his congregation who lay dying on her deathbed. And she said to a friend who was gathered near to her that the Savior would never let her perish. Her friend said to her, but suppose that he did not keep his promise and you were lost. She answered, he would be a greater loser than I. When asked what she meant, she said, it is true that I would lose my soul. But God would lose his honor and his glory if he were not true. God would lose his honor and his glory if he were not true. And he would be a bigger loser than you if he didn't save all those that he purposed to save. Now, that is the very simple point of the Exodus. God is going to save his people for his own glory. God is going to deliver Israel, not because of anything in Israel, not because of Israel's faith. And let me say this, not because of Israel's repentance. 
In fact, we're going to see in this chapter that Israel is grumbling and complaining at the point when God is going to redeem them. And the point of the exodus through the Red Sea is that Moses says, stand still, do nothing, and see the salvation of God. Um, We don't like to hear that in our flesh. We want to contribute something to our salvation. We want to either bring our faith and repentance or our good works And we want to do something that makes us contribute to our salvation. And yet the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea teaches us emphatically that God and God alone is going to bring salvation. That God is going to do it sovereignly and that God is going to do it for his own honor and glory. So that as that elderly woman said, if he didn't do it, he would be a greater loser than his people. Now, if that sounds blasphemous, we've got to get a whole new grasp of the grace of God in the gospel. Because God would have us see this evening that he and he alone is going to save his people and he's going to do it without the help of anyone. Now, it's been noted that in the book of Exodus, there's all these these characters in this drama. There, There is Moses. There are the Hebrew midwives. There is Moses's mother. There is Moses' father-in-law, there is Pharaoh, there is Aaron, and they're all playing different parts and different roles, but there is one actor in this great drama that stands out above all others, and it is the Lord. And when we come to the Red Sea, there is one actor who is overshadowing all the other actors in this redemptive drama, and that is the covenant Lord. Now, I want us to see tonight as we consider this three things. First, I want us to consider the malice of the enemy. And then I want us to consider the complaints of the people. And then I want us to consider the salvation of the Lord, the malice of the enemy, the complaints of the people, and the salvation of the Lord. Well, Pharaoh has driven the people out. They have gone out. He has said, get away from me. I never want to see you again. He has told Moses he would never see him again. God has given the people favor with their Egyptian neighbors. They have gotten gold and silver. They have plundered the Egyptians. And they have gone out, and God has led them out. He has given them all of those associated things in the the preparations of the Passover. He has prepared them, in a sense, for what he is going to do for them. But now, as it were, in this final act in the drama of redemption, and in one very real sense, this is the great act in the drama of redemption. God is again going to show us um, how he is going to deal with his enemies. Now, notice that he uh, tells the people through Moses to turn back and encamp in front of Pahahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal, Zephon. You shall camp facing it by the sea. Now, If you were to get a map out and you were to look at exactly where God was bringing the people, he was placing them between the desert and the sea. And he was essentially saying, my people are going to be like sitting ducks before the Egyptians. He is, from a military military strategy point of view, this is the dumbest thing you could ever do. You know, we had Harry Reeder here with us last week and I've been on numerous leadership trips with Harry, and one in particular I'll never forget was we went to Gettysburg years ago, and and Harry, knowing all the different uh, all the different state uh, ensembles in the in the battle arrays, and 
and he'd say, you know, the Alabama boys were over here and the Georgia boys went around to flank them. God is sending all of Israel to the worst place they could ever go. They are destined to lose, humanly speaking. He says, I'm going to hem you in so that you think there is no chance. And he's going to do that as a lure for Pharaoh. I love this. John Calvin, when he's meditating on this, he says, if the people had come into the land of Canaan by a direct route, they could not have been so readily pursued by Pharaoh. Therefore, God, for the sake of magnifying his glory, set a bait to catch the tyrant just as fish are hooked. Isn't that interesting? God is setting a bait to catch the tyrant just as fish are hooked. And he is using his people, putting them in that situation because God is intent on destroying all of his enemies and all of his people's enemies. God has not yet destroyed his enemies. And so notice the Lord then tells Moses exactly what's going to happen. Notice verse 3. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. They're trapped. They're enclosed. And he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, a little later in this chapter, Pharaoh and his servants are going to talk just as God said that they would. And they're going to say, what did we do? We made a huge mistake. Now who's going to build all our great buildings? Now who's going to do all our servile work? We have no more servants. We have nobody else we can oppress. Who's going to do everything we want them to? Um, Many theologians, as they've looked at this chapter, they have noted that as Pharaoh stands as a type of Satan himself, the evil one, that there's a picture here that when God goes about saving a people, The evil one is enraged from losing those that he's held in bondage. And he will do everything in his malice to get back those that God has delivered. You know, it is not uncommon when a man or a woman, a boy or a girl is converted, that especially in those early years, there are some very challenging things that happen in their lives because the evil one is enraged that God has delivered his people. Um, This is not hyper-spiritualizing. Remember, Pharaoh himself is a representative of Satan's kingdom, and God is intent on crushing the head of the evil one, and the evil one is enraged in malice against God's people. Um, We don't do ourselves any favors when we forget that we are the objects of the malice Of Satan himself. If you belong to Christ, you are the object of Satan's hatred. He has the whole world under his sway, but when the Lord redeems the people to himself, it incites the malice of the evil one. Notice that the king says, What have we done that we have let Israel going from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots. And all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them, he has come out in full battle array. Israel has none of this. Israel has no weapons to stand against this. And he is coming with a legion of officers and weapons to destroy God's people and enslave them again. He is going to spare nothing 
in his malice. And then notice that we are told in verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in the front of Baal-Zephon. You know, I think that portions of scripture like this remind us that when we are subject to the attacks of the evil one, that we would understand that God's purposes are still overruling. Isn't that interesting? God has orchestrated everything. God has set the bait. God has has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And everything that happens in that malicious pursuit is not outside of God's control. What a comfort. What a comfort because if the enemy that hates you so much was in control himself, we would have everything to fear. Um, I forget who said this once, but he said, Satan is God's lackey. Remember with Job, it's the Lord that calls the evil one. It's the Lord that says, have you considered my servant Job? It's God himself that sets everything in place to display his glory. What a comfort that even in the face of the rage of the enemies of God, God is intent on making his glory known. I think this is why Martin Luther could say, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Um, That's the confidence we ought to have even as we recognize that we are the objects of the malice of the evil one. So even as we watch against his attacks and temptations, we don't fear him and we don't live in perpetual fear of him as the children of Israel are going to do in just a moment. Now, God having set that stage and the malice of the enemy being set forward, we now see that as the Egyptians are pursuing the Israelites, that the people begin to complain. Notice this, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Now, here's a people that witnessed all of the plagues God sent on Egypt. Here are people who just a few weeks before had everything given to them for the Passover and they escaped the death of the firstborn. This is a people that saw God send thick darkness over the whole land and then eradicate all the firstborn men and beasts of the land. And yet, the second they're being pursued, they stop keeping their eyes fixed on the Lord and they start to fear the enemy. And as they start to fear the enemy, they start to complain against the servant of God. Um, You know, I think it's fair to say that Whenever people take their eyes off the Lord, they automatically shift into complain mode. Um, it's a good, good test for us to ask, how much am I complaining? And if I am complaining, and I'm grumbling, and I'm bickering, and I'm not getting my way, or I want this, or I want that, or I'm not happy about this, we should ask ourselves, you know, am I fixed on the Lord? Or am I fixed on myself? Here, Israel is just concerned about their own self-preservation. They don't have a sight to God's glory. 
They're not trusting in the God who has singularly delivered them and done everything for them. And this is going to be a perpetual problem in Israel's history. And lest we sit back and say, yeah, but I'm not like them. I would remind you that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, these things were written for our example upon whom the ends of the ages have come that we would not complain as they did because we have the exact same nature as they do and we are prone to the exact same rebellion as they were. Um, You know, it's interesting. uh, Phil Riken notes this rather than waiting for God's answer because it says they feared and they cried out to the Lord. Notice that. Notice Verse 10, they feared greatly and they cried out to the Lord, but this was not a crying out to the Lord in trust. Riken says, rather than waiting for God's answer, the Israelites immediately turned to his prophet. People often do this when they're under spiritual attack. They blame their spiritual leaders. In this case, the Israelites said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into this desert to die? Thus began a long tradition of Jewish comedy. What gave their sarcasm its bite, of course, was that there were graves all over Egypt, like the Great Pyramids, to give just one example. They also said to Moses, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians, when in fact the Bible never says that they said that to Moses. Now they just start to make up complaints. Didn't we say this to you? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone? No, they had never told him that. And you see how fickle we are by nature. You see how quick we are to turn against the Lord and against his servants and not to trust him and to fear or to complain. You know, the Lord will warn Israel in Deuteronomy as he is preparing them with instructions for what they're to do when they go into the promised land. And in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy and chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, I've always found it very interesting. The Lord will say in chapter 6, when you come into a land that you didn't labor for and you eat food you didn't labor for and you live in houses that you didn't build, be careful not to forget the Lord your God. And then in chapter 8, he says, when you come into the land that I give you and you eat food that you labor for and you live in houses that you build, be careful not to forget the Lord your God. You see, the Lord knows Just how quickly and easily his people forget him. Whether he gives them things they didn't work for or whether they work for things, they can just as easily forget the Lord. Now, Israel is consumed for their own safety and their own provisions, and they've lost a sight to the honor and glory of God and his name. Well, even as they are complaining, and I've always thought this is wonderful, notice no sooner do they say to Moses, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, notice verse 13, in the midst of their complaining, Moses says to the people three things, fear not, stand firm, And see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, stand firm, 
and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, these are three very unique commands. The first one is a negative imperative. Fear not. Don't be afraid. God commands us everywhere in Scripture not to fear. Um, I don't think that was the most helpful phrase during COVID when people that didn't want to wear a mask went around and was like, fear not. That's not what the Lord's talking about. He's talking about in all of your life, as we are making our pilgrimage through this barren wilderness, and we are beset by all the challenges of the hardships of life as we are subject to the attacks of the evil one, as we are pressed in by the world itself around us, as we see our brethren persecuted for the name of Christ, the Lord is constantly telling his people, fear not, I will redeem you. Fear not, I will be with you. Do not be afraid. It's a constant restraint, refrain in scripture, starting in many respects here in the Exodus. Fear not. And then the Lord tells the people, stand still. Now, if you were about to get in a battle, and you were about to get in a war with an army much greater than you, much mightier than you, and with more weapons than you, one of the hardest things for you to do as an army would be to stand your ground and not move. They are hemmed in between the sea and the desert. There is nowhere for them to go. And God says through Moses, stand right where you are. And then he says, third, see the salvation of the Lord. Now, I think there's a word for us here. Most of us, as we go through life, are very good at scheming, planning, trying to figure out what we need to do next and, and, and what, what I need to do next. And this is not, let me just say this, this this evening, this is not that sort of Keswick theology, let go and let God. This is not that. In fact, there is a very active measure. God is saying to them, don't be afraid, stand still and watch what I'm going to do. Um, in the work of redemption, that is the only way to see God's honor and glory. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. In the midst of the malice of the enemy and the complaints of the people, God says, I'm going to show you my salvation. And the rest of the chapter is how the Lord is going to save his people. And notice what Moses says at the end of that verse. He says, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Notice verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, we have the advantage in the new covenant of knowing that all of this is pointing to what Christ did on the cross. Where does God ultimately say to his people, do not be afraid, stand where you are, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. Only be silent. It's when we look at the cross. And when we look at the cross, we see the salvation of God. And we see God taking all the sin of his people on himself, destroying all of his enemies, drowning them under the wrath that is poured out on Christ. And there is nothing that you add to that except the sin that makes it necessary. 
I love that quote by John Gerstner. He said, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. You know, if you hate that, it's because you have either lost sight of the grace of God in the gospel or you've never gotten it. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And the Lord says, but I, singularly by myself, am going to deal with your sin, with Satan, with the world, with death, with my wrath. I am going to do it all, and you must be silent and observe and witness. You know, I think there's a word here. The the scriptures are always telling us that one of the great enemies of men and women coming to saving faith in Christ is that by nature we are hardwired to the covenant of works. By nature, we are deeply self-righteous. I was reading a letter uh, by Andrew Bonar to a friend who was sick and suffering, and Bonar went off in this letter saying, um, whenever you feel yourself trusting in your own righteousness, look to the cross. Look to Christ. Look at what he's done. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Because one of the greatest enemies to men and women coming to know Christ is that they cannot bear to think that they don't bring anything to the table of salvation. And yet, if the Exodus teaches us anything, it teaches us that God and God alone can bring salvation. You know who had to learn this lesson? Jonah. And when he was in the belly of the fish... When he finally came to a place of acknowledging his sin, he says at the very end of his prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He recognized the same principle that God was calling his people to recognize. Now, here's the thing. This this should be so self-evident to all of us by nature. If God is infinite, eternal and unchangeable, if he is infinite in power, if he fills the heavens and the earth, if he is contained only by himself, when we say he has all power, there is no limit. He doesn't have a lot of power. He is infinite in power. And if we say we believe that, why so often do our lives lives reflect that we don't believe that? We need to hear this word. The Lord says to Israel, as he says to us tonight, Do not fear, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Now, I want us to consider the way in which the Lord brings this salvation about. Notice the Lord goes on to acknowledge that he's going to get glory over Pharaoh and his host and his chariots and his horsemen. And he he tells Moses to lift up his staff and stretch his hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea. On dry ground. Now, this is the second of those great water deliverances. We have already talked about this, the flood narrative, where God both saves and destroys through the waters of the flood. Now God is going to do the same thing with the Red Sea. And why is God going to use the waters of the sea to deliver his people? Well, first of all, because it harkens back to creation. Remember that at creation, the waters covered the earth and God sent a a wind over the earth through the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And God divided the waters and the dry land appeared. And the same language is being used in Exodus. 
This is a great act of recreation. Everything God is doing in the salvation of his people, he is committed to bringing about a new creation, making them a new creation. Not just giving them moral renovation, not just making them better than they were, but bringing them from spiritual death to spiritual life, bringing them from chaos to created order and blessing. Israel is going to walk through the sea twice, Moses says, on dry land. They are going to be a typical new creation to God. They are going to experience a resurrection through the sea. And yet, as with God's other acts in the Old Testament, salvation is only going to come through judgment. Now, it's interesting, there is a parallel of sorts between the deliverance God gives in Exodus 12 and the Passover and the deliverance that he gives in the Red Sea. And here's the difference. Because you might look at both of these and you might say, well, there is the angel of the Lord there, there is judgment, there is deliverance, and yet there, there is a very clear difference between the two. And listen very closely. In the Passover, God is delivering his people from his own wrath. In Exodus 12, the great threat to Israel is the wrath of God. If they do not have the blood of the Passover sprinkled on the doorpost of their houses, the same judgment that falls on Egypt will fall on them because God is a God of wrath and all men by nature are under his wrath and curse. In Exodus 14, the great threat to Israel is their enemies by way of Pharaoh, and as I've said already, as he stands, a type of Satan himself. And so God is showing that he is dealing with all of Israel's enemies, and he is dealing both with the wrath that they were threatened by in chapter 12, and now he is dealing with their enemies in the form of the Egyptians. Now, God appears, he is present with his people. Notice that we're told in verse 19, the angel of God was going before the host of Israel, moving, went before them, the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night with one coming, without one coming near the other all night. The Lord is with his people. The Lord is present in the pillar, in the cloud, in the fire. This is, this is a theophany. This is a picture, many theologians have said, of Christ present with his people. Actually, Moses is going to say that the Lord is in the cloud, and he was looking down from the cloud, and he was looking on the enemies of his people. Think about that. God loves his people so much. God is so committed to the redemption of his people that he take, takes special note of their enemies that are trying to destroy them. And he stands between them and their enemies. He is not, he is not standing afar off and doing it from far away. He is coming near. This is the whole point of Christ coming and tabernacling tabernacling with his people. He is with them, just like one like the Son of Man was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. He is with them, just like presumably he was in the lion's den with Daniel. He is there with his people. He has come and identified himself with them. He has come down to them. He has descended to his people, and he is taking special note of their enemies. Um, 
want to read this to you again. Um, Phil Riken says, God wanted to gain this glory at Pharaoh's expense. He said, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army. If this strategy seems familiar, it's because God used it again when he sent his son to the cross. To Satan, it must have seemed like Jesus had no idea what he was doing. He was God the Son, yet he allowed himself to be handed over to sinful men who stripped him, beat him, and crucified him. On the cross, he was so vulnerable that Satan thought he had the strategic advantage, and he pressed it to death. But of course, this was his fatal mistake because the whole thing was a ruse. The cross was not a defeat for Jesus, but a victory. By making atonement, he was able to gain eternal victory over sin, death, and Satan. Thus, the Bible says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that is Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, God is there because God is intent on luring his enemy into this trap and destroying them so that he would get glory, that he would get honor, that his name would be known and his people would get delivered. What a marvelous picture of the gospel God gives us. What a marvelous picture of what he does for us through Christ crucified. What a glorious picture. Now, um, you will know that as Israel passes through the sea, the Egyptians decide to follow them in, and God determines to close the waters over them and to destroy them in those waters. And you know, the Apostle Paul will actually say that the Red Sea was baptism. I don't know if you knew that. He said the Red Sea was baptism. Everybody who got immersed died. It's a joke. You can laugh. And everyone who went through on dry land was saved. And in that baptism, it is a picture, and this is the significant point, it is a picture of the blood of Christ. Um, Jonathan Edwards, my last quote to you tonight, he said, The people of Israel went out with a high hand, and Christ went before them in a pillar of cloud. He says, As Satan pursued the people, Christ overthrew the Egyptians in the Red Sea. The Lord triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he cast into the sea. They slept their sleep and never followed the children of Israel anymore. The Red Sea represented Christ's blood because the apostle compares the children of Israel's passage through the Red Sea to baptism. Now, how do we get there? Well, besides Pharaoh and Egypt being a type of Satan, our great enemy is our sin. And baptism represents the washing away, the cleansing, the washing away of the filth of the flesh. And when Christ died on the cross, Jesus himself said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And he's talking about his death on the cross because all of the sins of God's people and now all of the powers of darkness converged on the sun. And when the waves of God's wrath came over him, the sin of God's people was washed away. The enemies of God and his people were destroyed. And that's how Paul can say that the Red Sea was baptism, and that's how Edwards can rightly say baptism points to the blood of Jesus, and so the Red Sea points to the washing away of the enemies of God through the judgment that God sent on them through the waters of the Red Sea that point to the blood of Jesus. Now, that's good news for us, and here's why. 
Because if you're in Christ tonight, we are not waiting for redemption to happen. We are not waiting for an exodus. We have already experienced the exodus. If you are savingly united to Jesus Christ, you have already been brought through safely, through the waters of judgment. You have been delivered by those. Christ has already disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle over them. He has already washed all of your sins away in his blood. You are delivered and you have seen the salvation of God. And all that God calls us to do is to remember what he has done and to keep our eyes fixed on him by faith. You see, we're not waiting for salvation. We're looking back at it and we're hoping in the God who has already saved us. That's the glorious news for us. Think of that. Israel had no idea what this was pointing to. We do. When we look at the cross and we look at the empty tomb and we realize that God has brought us out as new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone's in Christ, he is literally a new creation. He's part of the new creation. God has brought us through as it were. And he has raised us from death to life. And I want to encourage you tonight, as you contemplate the attacks of the evil one, as you think about the enemy of your own sin, that you would, again, stand still at the foot of the cross and you would see the salvation of God. Um, I love that hymn by Fanny Crosby, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain, free to all, healing streams flow from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. So much of the Christian life is learning not to fear. It's learning to stand firm. It's learning to stand still. It's learning to know that the Lord has fought for us and to be silent as we consider the salvation of our God. You know, if we don't do that, And I'll leave you with this thought tonight. If we don't linger long at the foot of the cross every day of our life, we are going to be just like Israel. We're going to be a bunch of miserable, complaining people. That's what happens. We will complain. We will nitpick. We will grumble. We will fight. You know why churches fall apart? Because they stop focusing on the salvation of the Lord that he has accomplished for his people. Um, I want to leave you with that warning tonight, rather than a lot of comfort. We need to check our spirits to see whether we are grumbling and complaining, whether we are fearful, or whether we are standing firm and standing still and watching the Lord bring glory and honor to himself. I want to encourage you, though, with this thought of that dying woman on her deathbed. She said again that the Lord would never fail to keep his promise. He would never lose her. She said he would be a greater loser than I. It is true that I would lose my soul, but God would lose his honor and glory if he were not true. Praise God that he is true 
and that he has already accomplished salvation for us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this reminder of how you delivered your people through the waters of the Red Sea. We thank you that you are the God who is mighty to deliver. We thank you that you are God who fights for your people. We thank you that tonight you call us to fear not, to stand firm, and to see the salvation of our God. And so, Lord, would you enable us again to fix the eyes of our hearts on the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ? We pray that you would remind us that you have already defeated all of our enemies, that our sins have been nailed to the cross, that you have disarmed principalities and powers. And our God, we pray that you deliver us from being a people who live in ungodly fear or a people who live in complaining and grumbling. And so, Lord, would you help us and would you again astonish us with your saving grace in Christ? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.